You're listening to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. I'm Garrett Ashley Mullet, and I want to talk about everything. Samson went to Gaza, and there he saw a prostitute, and he went in to her. The Gazites were told, Samson has come here. And they surrounded the place and set an ambush for him all night at the gate of the city. They kept quiet all night, saying, Let us wait till the light of the morning, then we will kill him. But Samson lay till midnight, and at midnight he arose and took hold of the doors of the gate of the city and the two posts, and pulled them up, bar and all, and put them on his shoulders, and carried them to the top of the hill that is in front of Hebron. After this, he loved a woman in the valley of Sorek, whose name was Delilah. And the lords of the Philistines came up to her and said to her, Seduce him, and see where his great strength lies, and by what means we may overpower him, that we may bind him to humble him. And we will each give you eleven hundred pieces of silver. So Delilah said to Samson, Please tell me where your great strength lies, and how you might be bound that one could subdue you. Samson said to her, If they bind me with seven fresh bowstrings that have not been dried, then I shall become weak and be like any other man. Then the lords of the Philistines brought up to her seven fresh bowstrings that had not been dried, and she bound him with them. Now she had men lying in ambush in an inner chamber, and she said to him, The Philistines are upon you, Samson. But he snapped the bowstrings as a thread of flax snaps when it touches the fire. So the secret of his strength was not known. Then Delilah said to Samson, Behold, you have mocked me and told me lies. Please tell me how you might be bound. And he said to her, If they bind me with new ropes that have not been used, then I shall become weak and be like any other man. So Delilah took new ropes and bound him with them and said to him, The Philistines are upon you, Samson. And the men lying in ambush were in an inner chamber But he snapped the ropes off his arms like a thread. Then Delilah said to Samson, Until now you have mocked me and told me lies. Tell me how you might be bound. And he said to her, If you weave the seven locks of my head with the web and fasten it tight with the pin, then I shall become weak and be like any other man. So while he slept, Delilah took the seven locks of his head and wove them into a web. And she made them tight with the pin and said to him, The Philistines are upon you, Samson. But he awoke from his sleep and pulled away the pin, the loom, and the web. And she said to him, How can you say I love you when your heart is not with me? You have mocked me these three times, and you have not told me where your great strength lies. And when she pressed him hard with her words day after day and urged him, his soul was vexed to death. And he told her all his heart and said to her, A razor has never come upon my head. For I have been a Nazarite to God from my mother's womb. If my head is shaved, then my strength will leave me, and I shall become weak and be like any other man. When Delilah saw that he had told her all his heart, she sent and called the lords of the Philistines, saying, Come up again, for he has told me all his heart. Then the lords of the Philistines came up to her and brought the money in their hands. She made him sleep on her knees, and she called a man and had him shave off the seven locks of his head. Then she began to torment him, and his strength left him. And she said, 
The Philistines are upon you, Samson. And he awoke from his sleep and said, I will go out as at other times and shake myself free. But he did not know that Yahweh had left him. And the Philistines seized him and gouged out his eyes and brought him down to Gaza and bound him with bronze shackles. And he ground at the mill in the prison, but the hair of his head began to grow again after it had been shaved. Now the lords of the Philistines gathered to offer a great sacrifice to Dagon, their God, and to rejoice. And they said, Our God has given Samson, our enemy, into our hand. And when the people saw him, they praised their God. For they said, Our God has given our enemy into our hand, the ravager of our country, who has killed many of us. And when their hearts were merry, they said, Call Samson, that he may entertain us. So they called Samson out of the prison, and he entertained them. They made him stand between the pillars, and Samson said to the young man who held him by the hand, Let me feel the pillars on which the house rests, that I may lean against them. Now the house was full of men and women. All the lords of the Philistines were there, and on the roof there were about three thousand men and women who looked on while Samson entertained. Then Samson called to Yahweh and said, O Lord God, please remember me and please strengthen me only this once, O God, that I may be avenged on the Philistines for my two eyes. And Samson grasped the two middle pillars on which the house rested, and he leaned his weight against them, his right hand on the one and his left hand on the other. And Samson said, Let me die with the Philistines. Then he bowed with all his strength, and the house fell upon the lords and upon all the people who were in it. So the dead whom he killed at his death were more than those whom he had killed during his life. Then his brothers and all his family came down and took him and brought him up and buried him between Zorah and Eshtel in the tomb of Manoah his father. He had judged Israel twenty years. Welcome back to the Garrett Ashley Mullet Show. This is, of course, Garrett Ashley Mullet coming to you from Greeley, Colorado for episode 711, 711. That is this episode. Grab a Slurpee. Grab yourself a Mountain Dew. Don't forget to pay. That was Judges chapter 16. And Samson and Delilah. What a story, right? What a narrative, what a character sketch we get of this judge by the name of Samson, extraordinarily strong, supernaturally strong, not normally on his own strong, but blessed by God with extraordinary strength physically. He is very strong. And why? Why is he so strong? It's because God is going to teach the Philistines and Israelites and, yes, us also, some lessons about the limitations of physical strength, but then also how a man can be so strong and so weak at the same time. (laughs) Samson has a weakness for women. There's just no getting around that fact. In fact, if you think about the impression you've had of Samson for As long as you've been hearing Bible stories, if you grew up in the church and you were a little kid, you were hearing about Samson, maybe it got cleaned up a little bit. There's the exciting stuff about 
killing a lion with his bare hands and ripping it into pieces, ripping limb from limb on this lion like you would a goat. There's that. But the bits about having taken this wife, making a wager, losing the wager because Samson's poor choice in women, a Philistine woman his parents tried to warn him about, but he wouldn't listen, betrayed him to 30 companions who were basically just, hey, we need somebody to party with you. These guys are handy. They're Philistines. They'll do. His first wife betrayed him, giving the secret to the riddle to these 30 companions so that they could win a bet. That doesn't typically make it into the version that we tell to Sunday school kids in church. It just doesn't. It doesn't typically make it into the VeggieTales version that here is this newlywed couple and the wife is already trying to manipulate her husband. You don't love me. You only hate me because you won't tell me the answer to this riddle. Is she being funny? No. No, she's not. And it's not terribly funny. It's extraordinarily disrespectful. And it's a betrayal. She betrays her husband, to these 30 men because they threatened to burn down the house over her and her father. It's a pretty intense, pretty gnarly story. Very gritty. Very, very gritty. And what does he do? He loses the bet because they now know the answer to the riddle. And he goes to a neighboring town and kills 30 men who are Philistines, takes their clothes, and pays the wager that he just lost. Why did he lose the wager? Because this Philistine woman that he just married, who seemed right in his eyes, but really wasn't so right, betrayed him, manipulated him, and then betrayed him. So yes, he's very physically strong. He's stronger than 30 men. If he can overpower 30 men, he just comes tearing through this town and you're like, what in the world just happened? And as soon as he's counted up 30, he's like, okay, that's good. That'll do. I mean, just imagine being a Philistine in that town where he's just like, wow, wow, wow taking clothes, and then he's off. Then he's gone. Everybody else is like, what just happened? Again, not typically in the version that we tell to kids. And then he's, understandably, very angry with his wife, his newlywed wife, and now he's just not quite in the mood, even though it's all settled now. It's not really settled between him and his new bride. And so he goes away for several days. When he comes back, he is resolved to go and have his wife. Only now, and this is not my reading between the lines. This is what the lines say. Just read the lines. His father-in-law, or who he thought was his father-in-law, won't let him go in. And the reason that is stated is that who he thought was his father-in-law gave who he thought was his wife to the best man at the wedding which might imply that this man's daughter and that best man, not really the best man, ironically, from the wedding are behind closed doors. No, you don't want to go in there. Nope. Sorry. I thought you hated her. This is wild stuff. If this were a TV show, the vast majority of Christians in America either A, wouldn't watch it, or B, wouldn't want to admit to it <laughs> among church people, that they had watched it. There's just no two ways about it. We are more proper than God sometimes when it comes to these things because God puts it into 
the narrative of Judges, that we would understand something of the character of his people and also the Philistines and also some of the character of God. What's interesting, what's so curious is here in chapter 16, you have this toying with Samson. I mean, there's a a paragraph about how he made use of a prostitute in Gaza and the men of Gaza decided to surround the place. They set an ambush. They waited. They were going to wait until daylight. And then they were going to kill Samson. And Samson, about midnight, got some sense that maybe this is not the best place for me to stay. And so maybe these guys who are surrounding the house have kind of fallen asleep because they're figuring, well, we'll just get a little bit of rest. You know, they're, <laughs> they're, they're wanting to kill Samson, but they also want to get some good sleep tonight. They want to be well-rested before they kill Samson in the morning. Imagine their surprise when, round about midnight, they hear a whole bunch of noise, and what in the world is happening? Is that somebody carrying the front gate of our city to the top of the hill? What? Wild stuff, right? Wild. But then the very next part of the story is a woman who is named, and what's curious is the prostitute is not named, and Samson's first wife, who was killed, after all, because the Philistines were angry at her, somehow it was her fault that she had not kept her husband under control, and he went and killed 30 men of a neighboring town of Philistines to pay his gambling debt, but that woman's not named. Samson's first wife is not named, and this prostitute at the top of Judges chapter 16 is not named, but there is a woman who's named in this story. We know the name of Delilah. We don't know the name of even Samson's own mother. She's just the wife of Manoah, and she's just the mother of Samson, but we do know the name of Delilah, and it says that Samson loved her. Why did he love her? What does that mean that he loved her? He was enamored. He was something of a simp, perhaps, possibly. He just couldn't help himself. Wow, she's just so charming, so beautiful, so mysterious, so dangerous, maybe. Here is Samson, and he can kill a thousand men with the jawbone of a donkey, single-handedly, and then he's not at any risk of being killed by those men anymore. Now they're all dead, but he might die of thirst because he, man, after killing all those Philistines, he is really thirsty. But he wants a challenge or something because he falls in love with Delilah. What does that mean, right? Again, as Christians, very often we say things that maybe sound spiritual. The more we hear them cropping up in mainstream evangelical literature, the less we think to check whether they are biblical, (laughs) whether they are actually in the biblical text. Oh, no, that's not love, you might hear. It was just lust. The text says loved. Samson loved a woman in the Valley of Sorek, whose name was Delilah. And what's curious is this Delilah, it's known that Samson is interested in her. Otherwise, why do the lords of the Philistines go and seek her out to talk with her? Multiple lords of the Philistines. So these are leaders of the people of Philistia. 
And they say seduce him. Well, it seems like that's already pretty well in the bag. That's pretty well handled. Don't have to tell Delilah to do that necessarily. Samson's already crazy about her. But they say to her, see where his great strength lies and by what means we may overpower him that we may bind him to humble him. Now, what's curious here too, don't miss this. This is very, very important. They say on the front end that they want to humble him. And what they really mean is he's winning. So they reach for an insinuation that Samson, this Samson guy, you know what his big problem is? He's arrogant. Yeah, we need to encourage him to be more humble. Find out where his strength lies so that we may humble him. No, no, no. What you want to do is you want to neutralize him because you can't stand that he is stronger than all of your guys, all of you combined. You can't stand it that he bests a thousand men you send to collect him. You're not talking about humility here. You're talking about destruction, ultimately. You're talking about humiliation. Leave it to God to humble Samson. How about you just focus on not being idolatrous heathens who are treacherous and who try to, either through bribes or through bullying, get women to do your dirty work. But of course, that's not what happens. They each offer, however many there are, 1,100 pieces of silver to Delilah. And what's crazy is Delilah doesn't skip a beat. There's nothing in the biblical text here, nothing in Judges 16 to indicate that she even pauses or hesitates or has any remorse whatsoever. She will take the money and she will get the job done. So she's only interested in the money. She doesn't care about love. She doesn't care what she's doing to this man who's fallen in love with her. She just wants that money. And so she toys with him. She asks And then he doesn't say, oh, I'm not telling you and stop asking. No, no. She asks and then he apparently thinks this is a big game. He's just playing with her right back. Oh, yeah, no. If if I'm bound with seven fresh bowstrings that have not been dried. Yeah, that's that's the secret. Yes. Yes, try that. He is toying with her. He is playing with her. And maybe he doesn't want to believe that she would betray him. Or maybe he wants to see how this all will play out. Maybe he's just curious. Everything's too easy with this guy. And so, yeah, I'm going to toy with you. I'm going to play with fire here. He should have walked away, but he didn't. He wouldn't. And then finally, he plays a little too close to the fire. He gets burnt. He actually does tell her she's not a trustworthy woman, but then love can make you stupid. Falling in love with a woman can make you stupid, can cause you to not think clearly. He actually tells her the secret of his strength, which interestingly enough, very curiously, is that his hair has never been cut. He has long hair because he's a Nazarite, because that's what the angel of the Lord told his parents, his mother in particular, who is not named again, by the way, in case you forgot, not named, he's going to be a Nazarite. So no wine, no strong drink, also never cut his hair. He is to eat nothing unclean. Interestingly, if Samson were around in our context right now, we would say, yeah, I'm really not all that concerned about what you eat. 
the not drinking anything, that's probably a good idea. As strong as you are, probably a good idea for you to not get into wine and spirits and strong drink. Probably a good idea. Yeah. Thinking practically, not thinking in terms of, hey, God commanded not to do this thing for you specifically. But you should probably cut your hair, right? You, <laughs> If you want to represent God and have a good testimony, you should cut your hair. And then his strength would be gone because that was the secret to his great strength. We would probably say at a bare minimum, we would say, hey, listen, you got to settle down, marry a nice Israelite woman and stop with the prostitutes and the Philistine women. Stop with getting into bed with women you shouldn't. You need to be pure. You need to be holy sexually. And all of that would be good advice, good counsel. But we would think that is going to be the secret to Samson's strength if he embraces purity with regards to his sexuality, how he relates to the opposite sex. For whatever reason, it pleases God for the secret of Samson's strength to be his hair. And there's this tragic moment where Delilah has gotten him to fall asleep in her lap. And it's probably, and this is my view of it, as I imagine it, she probably has him laying his head in her lap and she's probably toying with his hair. And that's why he doesn't notice as his hair is being cut off because it just feels like she's still toying with his hair and he drifts off to sleep. But then when she says, the Philistines are upon you, Samson, he wakes up and it says, the Lord left him. Yahweh left him. He didn't realize that Yahweh had left him. So the Philistines get him. They gouge out his eyes, maybe with the shears that they had just cut his hair off with. Maybe they didn't want to take any chances. Hey, you know what? Your hair might grow back, but your eyes, not going to grow back. And then they're going to humiliate him. They're going to make him work in the prison. And what's being described when it says all these Philistines are having this big party to celebrate having finally captured this nuisance, this guy who had ravaged their country, they said. It wasn't supposed to be their country. It's the promised land. It's the land that God promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and their descendants, not to the Philistines. But then what are they also saying? They're saying, our God, Dagon, has given Samson into our hands. And turnabout is fair play. If the Israelites have been saying, when we have a victory, it's because Yahweh has given us the victory. Of course, the Philistines are going to say, when they have a victory, our God has given us the victory. But it says that they bring Samson out to entertain them. What does that mean? We don't know. It's not said. But it's probably nothing you would want to imagine or endure. I'm just going to leave it at that. It's probably nothing you would want to be present for, and you would certainly never want to be subjected to. Because at root, even just they're bringing him out and cheering and laughing, that would be a bitter, bitter pill for Samson. Humiliating. Whatever they're doing to him physically, whatever they have done to him physically, gouging out his eyes, making him work in the prison, the laughing and the jeering, that's the fulfillment of what they meant when they said to Delilah that they need to humble him. They're not talking about humbling. They're talking about humiliating. They're talking about unpersoning 
and ultimately destroying. They want to neutralize him. And then once he's neutralized, they will make an example of him for their people to see, ah, see how great we are. And for the Israelites to see, you know what? If even Samson couldn't stand up to us, the rest of y'all better stay in line. You better not get any bright ideas. You saw what we did to Samson, right? Yeah, we'll do that to you too. Only it's not over, right? That's the trajectory that it was on. That's where it was going. That's the purpose of doing this thing. A public show of dominance by one culture over another culture. Where it goes next is that Samson prays a, yes, indeed, very humble prayer, asking God, please remember me, please strengthen me only this once, O God, that I may be avenged on the Philistines from my two eyes. And God answers that prayer. And Samson brings the house down. Oh yeah, you wanted him to entertain? Watch this. It says here that he killed more in his death than he did during his life. And this is quite a lot. If he killed a thousand with the jawbone of a donkey, this is quite a lot of Philistines we're talking about. Maybe you don't just have the place collapsing. Maybe you also have fires starting. If there were lamps and torches, braziers, they catch fire. People are caught in the fire. Who knows? But his family, his brothers and all his family, they come down at the very last. They find Samson in the rubble and they take him and they bury him. And that's it. And it says he judged Israel 20 years. He had judged Israel 20 years. And that's the end of Samson. That's the end of his story. That's the end of his legacy. It's a sad story, actually. It's exciting at various parts. It's very intriguing at various parts. Like, what in the world? How is this guy the one God is going to use to deliver his people? It's very, very curious. This guy would never, ever, ever, ever be allowed to serve in leadership in your church, I assume. He would never, ever, ever be the guy who is preaching and teaching and presiding over disputes among various people, pastors, in a movement of churches, a network of churches, a denomination. He would never be that guy. And yet it pleased God for Samson to judge Israel 20 years, two decades. That is very curious. And I don't think we should be so quick to presume that we are so much better, so much wiser than Samson in all cases, because it doesn't go without saying. It's not necessarily the case that we are so much better. If the kinds of things that are written about Samson were things that perhaps here and there only God knew, who's to say what the backstory would be on some of the people who rule and reign and preside over our country? Yes, you get rumors here and there. Every now and then somebody has an outbreak of scandal, but this is sordid stuff. This is, you know, on the one hand, very impressive, you know, very impressive to do some of the things that he did in fighting the Philistines, but then all interspersed and mixed up with that is an undeniable weakness for women and folly, actually, in relation to the weakness for women. The whole business really reminds me of Proverbs chapter 31. No not verses 10 through the end of the chapter, but the words of King Lemuel, an oracle that his mother taught him. 
verses 2 and 3. What are you doing, my son? What are you doing, son of my womb? What are you doing, son of my vows? Here we have an intact family. We have mom and dad got married before doing this deed that resulted in a child. The emphasis by repetition. Three times the question is asked, what are you doing? Verse 3, do not give your strength to women, your ways to those who destroy kings. And (laughs) a word about this, a word of counsel. This is in Proverbs 31. It's every bit as much scripture as the bit about a woman who fears the Lord. Verse 10, an excellent wife, who can find? She is more precious, far more precious than jewels. But then that's a question, right? It's an open-ended question. Who can find an excellent wife? If she's precious, far more precious than jewels, that is to say, she may not be easy to find and you may not find an excellent wife. You may find a wife who is flawed, imperfect at times, cantankerous, contentious. Proverbs talks about the contentious wife, how it's better to live on the corner of a rooftop than to dwell with a contentious woman, a woman who is constantly henpecking and nagging and complaining and undermining and arguing and being manipulative. But an excellent wife, who can find? And she's described, and we should not suppose this is an all or nothing sort of a thing, but it is to say, you should understand verse three as something of the other side of the coin to verse 10. Verse 11 says the heart of her husband trusts in her and he will have no lack of gain. So that is to say, if you do have an excellent wife, you should aspire to all of the blessings and the benefits of telling her your whole heart, sharing your heart and your home, both alike with her. Your heart trusting in her is part of how you are so blessed as a husband to have an excellent wife. But the other end of the equation, the other side of the coin, so to speak, is don't give your strength to women, your ways to those who destroy kings. Now, someone will raise a point of objection and they'll say, this all hinges on women in the abstract who are not your wife, right? So you have plural versus singular, and the answer to all of the above must be monogamy. Not necessarily, right? Not necessarily. Let me propose to you that what this actually hinges on is less a factor of the commitment of the man or whether this is singular or plural. That's not the point, although those can be very relevant, very, very relevant points to bring up. I don't think this is as much contingent on those two factors as on whether the woman in question, whether it's one woman, whether it's in the case of so many patriarchs and kings of the Old Testament when they had multiple wives, women, what this is all contingent on and what this hinges on is the character of the woman. If the character of the woman is that of Delilah, for instance, for example, you would be very unwise to give your strength to even a single woman. In the case of Delilah, it's one woman. Now, there's no commitment that we know of. There's nothing that says that Samson married Delilah. This was his wife. It was some woman that he had fallen in love with. That's pertinent. That is relevant. But then again, I don't think that's the hinge point. I think the hinge point here is 
whether Delilah is the kind of woman that he should marry. Maybe the reason he didn't marry her is because she's the kind of woman you shouldn't marry. She's not a woman of good character, as is demonstrated by how she reacts, how she responds when the lords of the Philistines offer her a king's ransom if she can give Samson over to them, if she can neutralize Samson. You have to suppose that Proverbs chapter 31, verses 2 and 3 here, as well as 10 through the end of the chapter, are written with a view to helping to explain the cautionary tale of Samson and Delilah. And it makes a lot of sense when you plug that story, that narrative, as a typical one, right? As the kind of narrative that would help to illustrate why this brief statement, this brief charge is sound advice, sound counsel. This is wise. This is wisdom. You can extrapolate out that in all such situations, you too can find that the secret to your strength is found out and you are neutralized and not humbled so much as humiliated. And also bear in mind, verse 11, the heart of her husband trusts in her and he will have no lack of gain. She does him good and not harm all the days of her life, verse 12. So she doesn't sometimes bless him and other times seek to destroy him or work together with others who are trying to undermine and tear him down and humiliate him. The excellent wife doesn't do that. And he trusts in her and he's right to, right? It's wise for him to trust his heart to her when she's an excellent wife. And that's why young men, let me just say this to you and young women, you can listen as well for the implications, but young men, I have a house full of young men and boys. I've been very blessed. Me and my wife have all these sons. When we give advice to our sons as to who they should be interested in, who they should pursue when the time comes that they would get wives for themselves, our counsel, our advice is going to be find an excellent wife. Find a wife of good character who you can trust your whole heart to, who you can tell your whole heart to. If you can't tell her everything you think, everything you're about, everything you aspire to be, all of your strengths and your weaknesses, if you can't trust all of those to her and expect her to do you good, she is probably not the right woman for you. But then on the flip side, how do you know? And is it reasonable to suppose any woman is going to be always this excellent wife? Is this a target that we aim for? And sometimes we all miss the mark. That's more probably the case. This is the ideal. This is good counsel. Actual mileage may vary. But if it's the case that a woman is not an excellent wife, if a lot of women are actually not of such great character, they can be selfish, capricious, mean-spirited, duplicitous, manipulative. If that can be the case, it's wise for their prospective husbands and, yes, even when they are married, their husbands, to keep some reserve, right? If there is a common complaint in this culture with regards to men and women who have been married for a time, for years, what is that common complaint? Very often, what I've heard is wives bemoaning the fact that their husband just doesn't talk with them. Well, maybe that's a problem with his character. That could be, right? 
he is not entrusting his wife with what is in his heart. But then it's also possible that part of the reason why he doesn't entrust her with what's in his heart is because she has betrayed his confidence a time or two and then not admitted it, wouldn't admit that, you know what, I'm sorry. I'm sorry that I said that. I shouldn't have said that. Sorry that I did that. I shouldn't have done that. I harmed you. Please forgive me. There have been little cracks and chips to the foundation of their intimacy and their trust and their love and their affection. And now he keeps himself on the corner of a rooftop. That could be a factor. You know, the point is not to rationalize that, to say that that's how it should be because that's just how it is. But the point is to say it's not always the men who are misbehaving. The women can dis- <laughs> the women can disobey God and the men can disobey God. And if God has given particular commands and a particular nature that is distinct, one nature to men, one nature to women in some distinctive ways, and if we're not stiff-necked, refusing to admit that, refusing to agree with that, then we would have to admit that when our natures go bad and our sinful nature expresses itself in masculinity for men and femininity for women, it looks different. You have to factor in that both men and women can be to blame for situations going badly, for marriages going badly, or for relationships just not working at scale because there's a common sentiment that is very dysfunctional and very disobedient and not according to how God made us and how he blessed us. But then again, consider if Proverbs 31 is a target to aim for, it would be better for us to meditate on that than to repay reviling for reviling, evil for evil. Verse 30 says, charm is deceitful and beauty is vain, but a woman who fears Yahweh is to be praised. Give her of the fruit of her hands and let her works praise her in the gates. That is a really great summation of what young men should be looking for in young women. They would be interested in marrying. And that is a great summation of what young women should be focused on. Don't rest on your laurels. That's a saying. It means if you have gotten some praise and honor for some accomplishment or some attribute, like say, for instance, how charming you are, how beautiful you are, young ladies, don't rest on your laurels. Fear God. And this is not just talking about your emotions and your heart and what's in your head. This is talking about the kind of orientation of your heart, the ordering of your affections that results in a life that is lived in service to God and in service to, let's say, your family. You can demonstrate that you fear God by honoring your parents, being kind and gracious to your siblings, blessing other people around you, serving them, loving them well, building them up, particularly the household of faith, doing good to the household of faith. Verse 31 says, give her of the fruit of her hands. That is to say, she works, right? She is doing things. Let her works praise her in the gates. That is to say, she has works. It's not all just, she's a pretty face because that will fade. Charm is deceitful. Yes, she's very charming, perhaps. And is that all? Is there more? Can you say more? If this were a resume and a job application, could you put just charming and beautiful 
on the resume and get a decent job, get a good job that's going to be highly rewarding? The answer is no. Well, then what else, right? What else are your characteristics? Yeah, charming. Not everybody's going to be charming all the time. Don't hide behind charm. You're not always going to be beautiful. What's your character? What's your orientation of the heart towards God? What's your orientation of the heart towards the people around you? And a man who is wise is going to be paying attention to that. He's going to notice that. He's going to appreciate that. He's going to fall in love with that. And if you're charming and beautiful as well, all the better. That's great. But lead with good character. Going back to Manoah's wife, though. Going back to Samson's mother. Before we leave Samson and continue on into Judges, I wanted to share with you a link I found while doing a search on what other people have had to say about the wife of Manoah in the book of Judges. I came across a write-up, you might say an article, over at myjewishlearning.com under a series, Personalities of the Bible. This write-up is by Rabbanit Leah Sarna and Ethan Schwartz, titled Eshet Manoah, Mother of the Mighty Samson. One of the Bible's many barren women, she had the grace and grit to become mother to the Jewish Hercules, and that's in quotations. He is kind of a Jewish Hercules. Some of the best-known women in the Torah are barren, they write. When the matriarchs Sarah, Rebecca, and Rachel struggle to conceive, Israel's very future hangs in the balance. As the nation grows, women in the Bible continue to struggle with and overcome infertility. One of these women is Eshet Manoah, the mother of one of the most fabled heroes of the pre-monarchic period in Israel's history, Samson. Now, we'll just stop right there, and all I am going to share with you for the purposes of this podcast at this time is how they describe these authors, Sarah, Rebecca, and Rachel as matriarchs. Now, it is very brief, and it's not overt, but it's unmistakable. You can't miss it. Describing Sarah, Rebecca, and Rachel as matriarchs There's a whole lot of baggage that comes with that, and there's a whole lot that goes into making the decision to describe them as matriarchs. Why call them matriarchs? Well, there is a broad semantic range for the word matriarch. Matriarch can mean, yes, just an honored older woman in your family line or in your organization, but more typically, the term matriarch is presented as a foil for the patriarchy. Just like we have patriarchs, let's also have matriarchs, but then wait, right? Just wait a second. It is the exception, not the rule, that you have women wielding authority over the family, over the community in the Bible. There's just no getting around that. If you want to say these are matriarchs, you have to admit that it means something very, very different than that their husbands were patriarchs. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are patriarchs over Israel in a way that Sarah, Rebecca, and Rachel are not matriarchs over Israel. Honored? Yes. Remembered? Yes. But not authoritative in the way that their husbands were authoritative. There's just no getting around that fact. Now, that said, let's go 
back to the title of this article. Eshet Manoah. You say, oh, her name is Eshet. Ah, interesting. Okay, so the Jews who have kept their traditions, they know that her name is Eshet. And it's not in the Bible, but, uh, you know, it comes down to us through much tradition. And it, it happens to be that we know her name was Eshet, Eshet Manoah. What does that mean? What, what does Eshet mean? Well, it means wife of. Oh, okay. So we're right, we're right back where we started then. Yes, that's quite right. Eshet. Eshet Manoah just means wife of Manoah. And that's fine that she is the wife of Manoah. That's not to denigrate her. It's just to say that's who she is in relation to others who are going to be known more far and wide. As in, someone may be able to trace their lineage to Manoah if Samson's brothers and his family are the ones who come to collect his body after he has brought the whole place down with the Philistine lords, so many of the Philistines inside. Someone may be able to trace their lineage back to Manoah, potentially. And they say, ah, okay, I am son of, who was son of, who was son of, who was son of, who was son of Manoah. And that's how these things were done. That's how these things can be done and I would say should be done. We have a very fine pattern set for us here. And it's not to say that's the only pattern, but it's the rule. And it's okay. Right, It's okay for us to not know the name of Manoah's wife. It's okay for us to know that she was Manoah's wife and she was Samson's mother. For that matter, too, to be upset, to be concerned, to be uncomfortable about not knowing her name, I think is perhaps helpfully addressed by asking the question of whether our name is in the Bible. Do you find your name in the Bible? Do you find my name in the Bible? No. How do you know that I matter? How do you know that you matter? Simply by looking at our relationship to God. We know what we need to know to understand that we matter, to understand that you matter, to understand that I matter. I don't need to find my name. I don't need to find your name specifically, explicitly spelled out in the biblical text. So also to know that Manoah's wife, Samson's mother, mattered I don't have to know her name. Another complication here, perhaps, but maybe it's a helpful complication, is that there are some whose names are changed. Jacob, for instance, he's a man. His name is changed. God changes his name and calls him Israel. It's fine that you still find the name Jacob prior to God changing his name, but it's also okay that back and forth, sometimes he's called Jacob, sometimes he's called Israel after God has changed his name. For that matter, in the New Testament, we find the person of Saul, of Tarsus. God changes his name too. He was Saul, and now he's Paul. And is the point that, oh, his name, you have to know his name in order for him to matter when God says, I'm going to call you Paul now because of this interaction that you've had with me on the road. Isn't it more important that God would know our name? Isn't it more important that God would have a relationship with us, relate to us, incorporate us into his story? I guarantee you, Manoah knew his wife's name. It would be more concerning if he didn't. I guarantee you, Samson knew his own mother's name. Surely, if we don't know her name, 
That doesn't mean that she didn't matter. She certainly mattered to God because the angel of the Lord appears to her. And if God has a relationship with us and God knows our name and the rest of the saints before our time, during our time, after our time, by and large have no idea who we are, but our local body of believers knows who we are. I think that's enough. I think that's okay. Because the point is not that we would make our name so great. The point is that we would make much of Christ. And if that is furthered more by knowing our name, great. And if that's furthered more by you not knowing our name, your name, my name, our names, then so be it. Consider with me the meaning of the word matriarch briefly. According to wordreference.com, matriarch can refer to the female head of a family or tribal line, also a woman who is founder or most important member of a group. That's the first definition provided. And the second Now, according to the Random House Unabridged Dictionary of American English, copyright 2023, as referenced at wordreference.com, there's also a third definition, which can mean a venerable old woman. According to Collins Concise English Dictionary from HarperCollins Publishers, a matriarch is a woman who dominates an organization, community, etc., A matriarch is the female head of a tribe or family, especially in a matriarchy. And again, a matriarch is a very old or venerable woman. Now, what's curious, what got me down this road of looking up the definition of matriarch is that at myjewishlearning.com, Leah Sarna and Ethan Schwartz want to describe these women in the Old Testament as matriarchs. And so I think, oh, in what sense are they matriarchs? Are they women who dominated an organization, community, etc.? Are they the female heads? Were they heads of their families or tribal lines? Were they the founders or dominant members of a community group? No, they weren't any of those. How about venerable old women? Well, Sarah certainly did get advanced in age, advanced in years, but should we venerate her? Or should we say we show honor, we respect that she was such an important part of the history of God's people, I don't think we should venerate her. Nor do I think we should venerate anybody except for God, really, truly. I mean, honestly, I think we should show respect and honor, but I don't think veneration is synonymous. I think veneration is rather a question of degrees. To venerate somebody is to revere them. I don't think we should revere them, but I think we can respect people. We can show honor to People without revering them, we should revere God. I save my reverence for the same person I save my worship for. I only want to worship God. I only want to revere God. Everyone else, I want to show a proper respect for, but it's going to be a finite respect because they are finite people and fallible people. God is holy. To venerate, according to Merriam-Webster, implies we hold as holy or sacrosanct because of character, association, or age, someone, right? You can venerate a hero, but then this is kind of like American Idol. We get these people who have a singing ability and they get up on stage and thousands of people in person, 
millions of people at home watch, listen, hang on every note and word and gesture. And we call it American Idol because there's a kind of worshipfulness there. And that worshipfulness is not really appropriate. If we showed that much interest, that much attention, that much affection for God, we would be doing all right. That would be good. But when we show that much to people because they have a talent, they have an ability, they please us, they please our eyes, they please our ears, we are at risk of being the pagans. So I say, I don't want to venerate either the patriarchs or the matriarchs of the Old Testament. I want to admit that they were men used of God, and I want to be respectful towards the memory of them, both the men and the women in the Old Testament. But if we're talking about who we recognize had authority in the Old Testament, it was not ultimately these women. They're described even just briefly as matriarchs at myjewishlearning.com. Sarah was not the head of the family. Rebecca was not the head of the family. Rachel was not the head of the family. If they advised their husbands or if they advised servants or if they advised their children, that doesn't mean that they were the heads of their families. If they managed their households well under the authority of their husbands, their husbands were the heads of their households, the heads of those lines. And that's why you know Manoah's name and you don't know his wife's name. And it's okay for that to be the case. In the whole business about Samson, actually, interestingly, the only woman who is named is Delilah. And not so good is the naming of Delilah. It's not a good name. I played at the top of this episode a little bit of the song, Hey There, Delilah, to transition us from the reading to the larger body of commentary and current events discussion. Hey There, Delilah begs the question to my mind, who would name their daughter Delilah? I mean, yeah, it's a pretty name and it rolls off the tongue and it is charming. It's beautiful, but then charm is deceptive. Beauty is fleeting. How about a good name? How about a good name being a name that means something true about God and about ourselves to serve as a reminder for a long, long time? Delilah maybe reminds you of certain things, but it's a warning. It's a cautionary tale. Delilah is not someone to emulate. Now you could say, oh, Samson's not either, but you know, it's a mixed bag. This is where, <laughs> this is where I say, don't venerate these men, as in don't regard Samson as holy, but the God who used Samson, you must venerate. You must regard as holy. And no less because God used Samson. Don't be so critical of Samson that you miss where he did the good thing. He did the faithful thing. God used him to do the good and faithful thing. But also at the same time, if we're honest about where he missed the mark, where he went astray, where he made a mistake, where he did the foolish thing, it was in giving his strength to women and being too trusting. He didn't guard his heart, for from it flow the wellsprings of life. Guard your heart above all things, for it affects everything you do. He didn't do that. He's a cautionary tale. Specifically, he didn't do that with regards to women, and one woman in particular, the only one who's named, Delilah. Maybe sometimes it's not the worst thing to not have your name in the Bible, because lots of people have their name in the Bible, and it's like, ooh, I would not have done that. Samson's mom, she's presented in a very favorable light. And if I had to choose, I would rather you just not know my name and just have me in reference to my own wife, my own sons, my own daughter, other people, 
but have my story be a good story where you say, hey, be like that guy. What's his name? I, I don't know. I just know he's Josiah's dad. I just know he's Evelyn's dad. I just know he's Lauren's husband. I just know he's the friend of so-and-so. I just know he's Micah's cousin. I just know he's J.P. Chavez's neighbor two houses down because it works both ways, by the way. Maybe that's my Indian name. I would rather my name be associated with a good story as in you don't know my name, but you know that good story and it's helpful and it honors God and it loves the people around me. It's important to them. It's important to future generations that I was faithful, I was obedient, I knew what I was about. Sure, I talked about everything, but did I do what was right? If that's my legacy and you don't actually know my name, you just know me in reference to one of my sons, for instance, who does something extraordinary, that's okay, right? That's okay. That's how I know that this is not a slight against the woman or women generally, that we don't always know their names. There are so many men we don't know the names of. Try to do your genealogy sometime, even when you're just tracing the male line back, your father's 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 father. At a certain point, you hit a dead end. And it's like, I have no idea. I'm sure that the last guy in the chain had a father too, but I have no idea who. Maybe he didn't either. What's more concerning to me is the prospect that one of my ancestors wouldn't have known his father. If he knew his father, I guarantee you that will come down to me in the way of a benefit. If I don't know his father's name, but he knew his father's name and his father was very involved and trained him up in the way that he should go, I derive a benefit. So also, if future generations of my descendants don't know my name, but my sons know my name, that's well. That's well. That's as it should be. And not at all. A knock on me, God knows, right? God knows. As long as my name is written in the book of life, the book of the Lamb, at the end, that's the important thing. But speaking of names and knowing names and having names written in or not written in, some reporting by James Bickerton over at Newsweek from September 6th, election officials discuss removing Donald Trump from ballot. As Bickerton reports, Michigan Secretary of State Jocelyn Benson has said there is a, quote, quite strong case that Donald Trump is ineligible to serve a second term as president due to the Constitution's 14th Amendment. The Democrat made the comment, and there's the tell, the Democrat, yes, yeah, naturally, naturally the Democrat would make this comment uh, during an MSNBC interview with Ali Velshi on Tuesday, revealing that secretaries of state for Michigan and several other states plan to collaborate on the question. Under Article 14, anyone who swore an oath to uphold the American Constitution but then engaged in insurrection or rebellion is deemed ineligible to be senator or representative in Congress or elector of president and vice president or hold any office, civil or military. Several legal scholars have argued Trump's attempt to overturn the 2020 presidential election result constituted a rebellion, meaning any White House return would be unconstitutional. Trump vowed to quote, preserve, protect, and defend the Constitution as part of his January 2017 inauguration. During her MSNBC appearance, Benson insisted the judgment can't be a political decision. Of course it's a political decision. Of course it is. Who are you kidding? But just for anyhow, so you don't have to take my word for it, and you don't have to take Bickerton's word for it, I'll play for you 
some audio in cut one for this episode of this exchange on MSNBC. Here it is, cut one. Take a listen. And I think the arguments for disqualification are quite strong, but we also have to recognize that we're in uncharted territory here, and there are counterarguments on the other side that need to be explored, important questions. Even if you set aside the question of, does this happen before or post a conviction, uh, where is due process? What is the definition of insurrection or rebellion? What is giving aid and comfort, and who is the proper authority to make those definitions? Uh, I think the courts have a critical role to play here. Okay. <clears throat> to her credit, she's saying a lot of true things and admitting the difficulties with this thing they so badly want. They want to remove former President Donald Trump from the ballot. And it seems they are fairly confident that he can get the nomination. He can get the Republican Party's nomination to be president. And of course, the Republican Party is in a pickle if he is by a long ways the leading candidate. He is. He is the most supported among Republicans who are right now trying to get the nomination of the Republican Party for president, to run as president, as a Republican, as the Republican Party's choice. He is by a long ways the leading contender. The Democrats don't mind him getting the Republican nomination, but if they delay a while and they say, you know, there are some important things we need to consider and, you know, let's start talking about it while well, they're warming the rest of the country and the rest of the world up in their minds to the possibility that he may get the nomination and they may not allow him to actually be on the ballot in 2024. And part of the reason for that may be that they hope the Republican Party just says, we're going to not allow you. We're going to disqualify you ourselves before this becomes a thing where we nominate Donald Trump and he's not on the ballot in several states, we're just going to say you can't have the nomination. Well, then the Republican Party has a major problem on their hands where perhaps 40 to 50 percent, maybe even more, who wouldn't necessarily have him as their top pick, but nevertheless disagree strongly that he is excluded from being a candidate and actually being president again for four more years, the Republican Party could be ripped in half. And so it is very important to think through, as the Michigan Secretary of State, Jocelyn Benson, pointed out, what are the answers to the questions being posed? What is your definition of rebellion? What is your definition of insurrection? How does this qualify as an insurrection that he was pointing to irregularities and quite a lot of cheating and quite a lot of secretiveness, quite a lot of shiftiness, a great many irregularities about the whole election cycle in 2020, including poll watchers being expelled by many accounts, boxes of ballots being brought in in the middle of the night, a lot of questions surrounding how the votes were tabulated not just what votes were cast, but who was counting the votes and did they count the votes properly? There were so many questions. There were so, so many questions. And the reason in part there were so many questions is because the Democrats and a lot of establishment Republicans didn't want Trump on the ballot in 2020. 
And for that matter, a lot of them didn't want him on the ballot in 2016. And so actually nothing has changed with regards to that. It feels very much as though this is safe cracking. And what I mean is they don't have the key to the safe, but they're going to take the lock picking set and see, can we maybe break into this safe? Will you let us, will you give us the time that we need to find the right combination? Because we don't have the combination. We just know that we don't want this guy. When it's the people who know that they don't want that guy, who just keep on throwing everything at the one they hate, everything they can lay hands on, they're throwing at him, hoping something works. At a certain point, you have to say, hey, listen, those claims, those questions about fraud, about cheating in the 2020 election, they're seeming more and more credible because this feels like cheating. It feels like cheating that you're doing out in the open to say that you didn't cheat and anybody who would suggest you cheated the last time around is barred from serving in any capacity ever again. Because this isn't just limited to Donald Trump. Whatever they get to test on Trump, as far as a novel legal argument here, barring him without a conviction, by the way, it's one thing to charge the man. It's one thing to claim the thing. And that's self-evident as well by the fact that he was questioning the 2020 election results and he was claiming that there was fraud. But a claim does not a conviction make as they know well. So they can claim that he carried out an insurrection and a rebellion. His being president in the first place, they said, was an attack on our democracy. They called him every ugly thing in the lexicon that didn't make any of it true. And if they say he cannot be on the ballot in 2024, that doesn't make it true. You have to actually show your work. Otherwise, where are we at? And again, my fellow Americans, this is a much bigger question. This is a much bigger problem than just whether you like Trump or you don't like Trump, whether he's your favorite or he's not. He's never been my favorite. You can go back and you can find articles I wrote during the primaries running up to the 2016 election. I criticized Trump. I did not especially care for him or his most diehard supporters. I was very skeptical. I was a Ted Cruz guy. For that matter, I would have preferred Rand Paul over Donald Trump. But in all honesty, what's most concerning to me here is not that Trump would be elected and we would have four more years of Trump. I think he did a remarkably good job and that a lot of the noise, a lot of the chaos that we associate with the four years of his presidency actually is because the Democrats were trying to carry out a rebellion and an insurrection. So it's ironic, right? It's terribly ironic that these people who are saying, oh, no, he's disqualified, are themselves in many cases, have been in many cases turning a blind eye when their end of the political spectrum is carrying out rebellion and insurrection. That's what's more concerning to me here is that we would strain out a gnat and swallow a camel saying, oh yes, it's for the sake of our democracy that we're going to let these insurrectionists on the left who literally by force claimed that major parts of American cities were now autonomous zones where they would not respect the rule of law because they were protesting systemic racism. They were protesting capitalism. They were protesting Trump. They wanted Trump out. They made 
as much to do about George Floyd and these other very sad situations with black men encountering law enforcement across the U.S. They made as much as they possibly could out of those things, and they tried to pin the whole business on Donald Trump and his voters, his supporters, his administration. They wanted to create as much negative association as possible, and it still wasn't enough. And I firmly believe, whatever you think about whether there was officially cheating, there was so much fraud in the 2020 election because of the Black Lives Matter and Antifa violence and the threats of violence that were happening all across the country and the way that the mainstream corporate news media was covering it. Fiery but mostly peaceful protests was literally what the marquee said underneath the reporter standing in front of burning buildings on CNN. Fiery but mostly peaceful protests. And then they would cut to Donald Trump walking across the street to a historic church in Washington, D.C. that had been attacked by these same radical leftists. And how did they spin that? Oh, he's a fascist, right? This is very fascistic that he is visiting this church, drawing attention to the optics of this church attacked by radical leftists in Washington, D.C., a historic church in our nation's capital. He's a fascist. Why? Because he believes that America should come first for the American government. He is arguing that America should be the top priority for the American government. He's a fascist. He's literally Hitler. He's saying we should secure the southern border. What? What? Wait a second. Wait, wait, wait. He's literally Hitler because he's trying to stop other people from invading our country? I think you maybe don't know as much as you think you know about the history of Nazi Germany. What made Hitler... The world's stand-in in a secular age, in a materialistic age, for Satan himself, what made Hitler the bogeyman was not that Adolf Hitler and the Nazis tried to build a border wall and stop other countries from invading Germany. It was that Hitler and the Nazis were invading every country that was their neighbor. Pretty much the exact opposite of what Trump was saying he wanted to do in the run-up to the 2016 election during his four years in office. And yes, even still, he still wants to do it, I'm quite sure. And we should want that too. We should want to have a secure border where we say, this is our country. This is our nation. And we want to protect our people. And we want to have a profitable business. We want to mind our own affairs. I mean, who can claim that America minding its own business is some nefarious thing. As a Christian, how with a straight face can you say, the guy is literally Hitler because he wants America to mind America's business and not get into expensive, open-ended wars that we have no intention of winning and that we don't have a really good argument, a convincing, persuasive argument for getting into in the first place. We're going to get out of stupid wars, stop getting into stupid wars. That was what he was saying, which is, again, pretty much the opposite of what Adolf Hitler did as chancellor and as Führer. What's more concerning to me than whether Trump challenged the results of the 2020 election, what's more concerning to me is that so many Democrats before him challenged presidential elections when they lost, and no such similar treatment were they subjected to. 
because it's not actually about equal application of the laws or equal protection of the laws for these people on the left. That's the tell that they are the insurrectionists. They are the rebels. They're the ones who want to carry out a bloody revolution. How you know is when they do the thing and they demand no consequences, we're doing this in the name of democracy. And when their political opponents do it, they say, absolutely, those people, those people should never be allowed. Even on the ballot, you won't even be allowed to vote for them if you want to. Why? (laughs) Why keep them from being on the ballot unless you're very afraid in a free and fair election, they would win. And that is what they're afraid of. I, for one, will tell you my honest opinion. My honest opinion is that Ron DeSantis is a better choice all around. That is my honest opinion. I won't belabor the point for the purposes of this discussion, but I will mention it in passing because there's a lot of things I don't particularly like or agree with or approve of regarding Donald Trump. But boy, howdy, he deserves a lot of credit. And I'm very appreciative and I'm very thankful that we had four years of Donald Trump and not four years of Hillary Clinton following eight years of Barack Obama and Joe Biden. I am very frustrated in my conviction that I should provide for and protect my family. I'm very frustrated at the effect which Joe Biden's administration and the administration of Democrats in cities and states across this country how those have undermined my capacity to provide for and protect the members of my household and my extended family and my circle of friends and my local church and my communities. The communities I've lived in have been less safe and less prosperous and less peaceful as a result of the Democrats, not as a result of Donald Trump. If they got upset and angry at Donald Trump, let's not get the narrative twisted that somehow that was his fault that they got upset. You might as well go back to the book of Judges with regards to Samson and say, we know that Samson was a bad guy. How? Because the Philistines were really upset about him. Because the Philistines were really angry. You know what? We don't want all this strife. We don't want all this upset. Oh, okay. So you're like those thousands of Israelites who came to Samson and said, hey, we're going to take you into custody, and we're going to hand you over to the Philistines. Please come with us peaceably. Ooh, I don't know about you. I don't want to be those guys. I would rather we have an imperfect Samson, and I think Samson is a pretty good stand-in for the type of character Trump has been in this country. I would rather have an imperfect Samson than these Philistines as imperfect, as flawed as Trump is, the alternative is thoroughly corrupt and malicious. And yes, even satanic. That's more concerning to me than whether he said all the things that I agree with, did all the things that I can approve of as a Christian. For our last story, though, let's leave off today's episode on a happy note. I would draw your attention to AaronWren.com. And a post from September 5th of this year titled Building Counter-Institutions. Here we have an extended quote. Aaron Wren introduces this quote with the following. A few weeks back, the British writer T.M. Suffield wrote an interesting piece on the need to start building counter-institutions. 
He channels the common lament about the decline of intermediary institutions and draws on the work of Yuval Levin in thinking about this problem. He writes, and to quote T.M. Suffield, Levin's thesis can be stated simply enough. America's social, economic, and political problems are due to the fracturing of its institutions, specifically the mediating institutions that unite individuals together. These mediating institutions are weaker than they used to be with the individual and national institutions ascendant. To make matters worse, these institutions are supposed to be molds, but have become platforms. His critique of American society in the fractured republic revolves around the death of small institutions, with all of their functions being absorbed into the state. He describes the conformity that was required by these mediating institutions fading over the latter half of the 20th into the radical individualism that's familiar to us today. This included many of the societal functions that churches performed being absorbed into state welfare systems. In Levin's view, to be run more efficiently with the consequence that the community-building impact of being involved in churches and working men's clubs, labor unions, and bowling leagues also faded away. Sheffield also writes, if we want to shape Christians to live in a world that is counterforming them, we will need counter-institutions that are forming them in virtue. We need to ask whether or not our churches are doing this. Levin's major critique which he spends most of a time to build, exploring in different arenas of society, is that the institutions that used to shape us, where they still exist, have become platforms. They no longer see forming people into virtue and helping them to live flourishing lives as their purpose. Instead, they display individuals, giving them prominence and attention without stamping them with a particular character, a distinct set of obligations or responsibilities, or an ethic that comes with constraints. Sheffield also writes, The institutions we do have, primarily our local churches, are being shaped into platforms of affirmation. There are many wonderful exceptions, but anecdotally, I see increasing numbers of churches who are keen to tell people that they are loved by God and will confront the need to change because of our personal sin, but have little sense that the church is intended to form people into virtue or to form our minds into Christian modes of thought. Mostly, we affirm people that they are loved, which is wonderfully true, and try to challenge as little as possible. Now, before I say any more in referencing Aaron Wren, what Aaron Wren has to say in response to this to expand on some of these ideals that Sheffield has just blessed us with, I want to remark on a few reasons I readily agree with this assessment. One is that I have noticed increasingly over my young adult life, I'm less and less young, the closer I get to 40, the farther I get away from being 20. But I've noticed from the time I got married to my wife, Lauren, and we started having children and we moved from Ohio to Montana, from Montana to Colorado, I have noticed in many churches this temptation increasingly given into in various ways to instead of promoting Christian thought, Christian truth, correcting, rebuking, exhorting, encouraging us towards loving good deeds increasingly, there is this temptation given into to latch on to a person who can be almost our intermediary, almost our go-between. We want to have a holy man who vicariously we minister through. And we do this by giving him our attention, 
by showing up, by giving of our tithes and offerings, but more to the point, by giving him our attention. We're paying attention, and vicariously, if we see him ministering, if we see him studying, if we see him teaching and rightly handling the word of truth, we hope, but don't you dare (laughs) question whether he is, because that goes badly for reasons I'll get into in a moment. If we see all that, then we are ministering vicariously through that man. And if we work to support the ministry, and by that we always mean pastors and missionaries, full-time vocational ministry, we don't typically mean supporting the ministry as in encouraging our fellow Christians in the pews. We don't mean that nearly often enough. Hardly ever, but sometimes we do. Not often. If we give and support financially the work of the ministry, then we pat ourselves on the back and we feel like we're really good people. And as long as we don't say bad words, watch bad movies and TV shows, listen to bad music, as long as we're nice, plus all of that, and we keep on coming to church, giving our attention, giving our money, then we're doing it. But there's more to virtue than just keeping oneself unspotted from the world. Remember when James says that religion, God the Father finds pure and acceptable as this, to attend to widows and orphans in their need, and to keep oneself unspotted from the world. If we only do half of that, well, that's something. But if we only do half of that, why aren't we doing the other half? If we attend to widows and orphans in their need, and we don't keep ourselves unspotted from the world, well, then I think we're probably liberals. We're probably probably pretty progressive from what I've seen. But if we keep ourselves unspotted from the world, but we don't attend at all to widows and orphans, we say, that's the church's job. We have not read Paul's letter to Timothy, where he says that the man who fails to, refuses to, neglects to provide for the needs of his family, here we have in view the extended family, which is another earlier institution which has imploded and handed increasingly ever more of its former role to the state. But the man who refuses to, neglects to, attend to, provide for the needs of his family, especially the members of his own household, which means not just the members of his own household. He's worse than an unbeliever. He is worse than an infidel. Oh, you think Richard Dawkins is pretty bad, right? You think you're a lot better than Richard Dawkins? Thank God that I'm not like this Richard Dawkins, new atheist guy over here. Watch out. Watch out. You might be worse, actually. You may be worse than him because you're deceiving yourself. You're kidding yourself. You hypocrite. Take care. I've seen this. I have seen this all over the U.S. And it's, I think, self-evident that when we talk separation of church and state, we really have given up on that third institution, that third sphere of legitimate authority. Traditional magisterial Protestant teaching on authority, as prescribed by the Bible, as affirmed by the Bible, gives you The church gives you civil society, so your civil government, kings, emperors, judges, city councils, governors of states, or maybe governors of provinces, but governors all the same, elders, deacons in the church. Yeah, absolutely. There are authorities in the church we must recognize and be subject to, but not without boundaries. And unfortunately, (laughs) unfortunately, We have forgotten one. We forgot the sphere of authority 
which in previous times was recognized as the family. And we say, after this, therefore, because of this. After the collapse of the family, we will just put all of the eggs that were formerly in the family basket into the basket of the church. Well, wait a second, not so fast. Isn't that disobedience to what Paul says about the caring for widows and orphans, at least the widows, how you're to care for widows is you apply pressure to their sons, their daughters, maybe brothers, sisters, extended family, niece, nephew, somebody, right? Somebody, they have to be related to somebody or marry them off. If they're younger than 60, they have good character, find that widow a husband to provide for her. So you see the church continually building back into the family and not taking things that should actually be the role of the family and then holding on to them jealously. Oh yeah, but this is how we maintain relevance. No, you know what? Be relevant to the authority of the scriptures in how you are conducting the business of the church and you will have strong families and that would be far better, far safer, far more holistic, far healthier. That would be a far better testimony. Your church will be stronger if the families are places where there is responsibility and authority. There has to be a means. I see this assessment by Sheffield referencing Levin being quoted by Aaron Wren. And I think, yeah, you know what? You guys are right. You're right. (laughs) And we need counter institutions. We've got to build counter institutions. You know where to start? Start in the home. Start with your household. Start with your extended family. Build a strong extended family that's obedient to the truth of God's word. And it won't be all that hard to do if you actually are providing for the needs of your family. There's a tremendous opportunity as the state is demonstrating that they can't maintain this illusion. If in a lot of churches we're finding that the church is plagued with dysfunction, problems, aplenty, the church can't just become father, mother, brother, sister, wife, husband to everybody. That's not the appropriate role of the church. Sure, if there's nobody, if you have nobody in life, you're an absolute orphan, an absolute true widow, yes, the church needs to be your surrogate, mother, father, brother, sister, extended family. But what's better than burdening the church with that is let's build those institutions back up and let's correct and challenge those who claim to be Christians and they make much of giving money to the church and then the church is supposed to take care of all these things. Wait a second. You sound an awful lot like Ebenezer Scrooge in A Christmas Carol where he says, oh, isn't that what taxes go to? Isn't that what taxes take care of? Here we are. Oh, isn't that what tithes and offerings take care of? Yeah, send him to the church. Have the pastor figure that out. Yeah, I, I don't know what to do about this. Nah, it's too complicated. I don't, I don't know. I don't really, I'm busy, right? You know, my kids have sports and music lessons, and one of them's going to be in a play coming up. I just, I can't possibly be bothered to attend to the needs of my extended family. The church will have to do that. It's a great opportunity for them to have a good testimony. No, no. It's a great opportunity for you to not be worse than an unbeliever. It's a great opportunity for you not to expose yourself as an absolute hypocrite. How about you be obedient to the word of God? 
And then maybe your extended family will want to listen to you tell them about <laughs> tell them about Jesus. Really. I mean, really, truly. This is something that I say with much sadness has played out, and I know that the proof of it is in my own extended family. I come from a broken family. My parents divorced when I was in junior high, and the dynamic will never be the same again. It can't be. I think forward to the future, and I think, you know what? I'm going to try my darndest, by God's grace, to provide for the needs of my family. If my father, my mother, my brother call me up and they say, hey, I need help. Whatever difficulties we've had, whatever conflict we've had, (laughs) I have to be there. I have to go and help them, if at all possible. As I raise up my sons, I'm thinking, man, I need to really explain that the way they see a lot of other people relating to brothers and sisters, even within our own extended family, how we see various people relate to each other, that's not the standard. Sometimes you'll find some good examples to follow. That's fine. But I want you guys to be kind to each other, to encourage each other, to support each other, to protect each other, to help each other, to work together on things and practice now because it's not going to get easier the older you get. You'll just get more clever at pretending that wasn't mean-spirited, what you just said, what you just did, how you left your brother hanging out to dry. No, no. Practice now because We don't know what's going to happen to our country. And this or that church, we've been through a number, this or that church might be one wrong move, one bad sermon, one scandal away from being ripped in half. Because this contingent said, absolutely not. And this one said, absolutely, yes, we will do this thing. And now there's two churches. Or now about 10 churches grew around town, around the area. Because everybody just went... In 10 directions. You know what we can do quite a lot more about to be of the most help, the most and greatest service to the kingdom of God, to our community around us, even those who are not believers. You know how we can be the most helpful to our future selves and one another, building a strong household where we are submitting ourselves to the word of God, where we look to that as truth and goodness and beauty, and the standard by which we judge what is true and what is good and what is beautiful. If that's what we do now, then in the years to come, we will find others are benefited. They are blessed. Continuing on with Aaron Wren's commentary on this. He writes, one logical response to the decline of institutions is to create new institutions. I would argue this is a variation of exit in Albert O. Hirschman's voice versus exit framework. The problem is, how do you create an organization that can actually operate contrary to the forces of society that are corrosive of, and in many cases even formally hostile to, functional intermediary institutions? The state actively desires to weaken institutions like the family, or at least render them subject to the state. It is already far advanced in this project. If the old institutions are dying or losing their traditional formational functions, why will not any new ones rapidly meet the same fate. Indeed, we are seeing that many evangelical institutions go into decline rapidly. Many of the earlier 1980s vintage megachurches already have mainline disease, an aging member base, fewer families with children, a style that seems stodgy or anachronistic, etc. The New Calvinism movement lasted less than a generation before entering major decline. Tim Keller 
once said that churches younger than five years attract primarily converts, while those that are older attract primarily from existing churches. This seems an admission that the half-life of missional effectiveness in churches is extremely short. I don't think there's an easy answer to these questions about rejuvenating our institutional life, but they have to be explicitly considered and a solution at least proposed. It strikes me that in a world that is corrosive of institutions, any new institutions that hope to last much less have a countercultural effect must embed some degree of antagonism toward mainstream culture and the state into the DNA. This does not necessarily mean hatred or hostility towards those institutions or people, but there must be some definition of the institution and its culture that positions it in opposition to that. Now, I'll just pause right here, okay? Let that sink in like Elon Musk at the Twitter headquarters. Let that sink in. My friends, this is a very tidy summation of what I am trying to do with my podcast. And this is why we homeschool is also a book that I wrote that you can go buy for someone you like who has kids and needs a little encouragement to get their kids out of the public schools. This is why, if it seems as though I am somewhat antagonistic at times to a totalitarian bend in government or a totalitarian bend in the church, it's because I am. And because if we want these things to not become soul-crushing and repressive and corrupt and evil, they have to have checks and balances from other legitimate, tried-and-true, God-ordained sources. So I'll give you a good example of this. I hope. I intend to anyways. Let's suppose one of my sons gets into a little bit of trouble. It's alleged that he broke some law, and now he is appearing before a judge. Let's suppose that the judge is friends with a pastor. And a pastor says, hey, listen, you know what? There are all these verses that talk about being subject to the governing authorities and doing what is good and not breaking the laws would be really good. And you stand convicted and shame on you. And now it's two spheres of authority saying to my son, hey, you have erred. You have wronged our community. You've sinned against God and man by breaking these laws and you're in trouble. How do you plead? If I step into that situation as a father, I have a different kind of a standing than if I'm just some guy. And we know this. And this is the way it's always been. This is how it's supposed to be. Not to say my sons are in any trouble with the law, by the way, just it's a hypothetical, okay? But it's appropriate that if somebody were saying, hey, your son is accused of doing X, Y, and Z, and that's not appropriate, he needs to be taken in. You know, let's go back into an earlier part of the book of Judges, for instance. The men of the town show up and they want Gideon's blood. They want him dead. Why? Because in the middle of the night, he took 10 of his father's servants and he tore down the altar of Baal. And he cut down the Asherah and he sacrificed an ox to God, Yahweh God, not Baal, Yahweh, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of Israel. And the men of the town found out that it was Gideon and they come to Gideon's dad and they say, send out your son, give your son over to us because he must die for this. These men of the town, who knows what authority they had or if it was just authority in numbers. Was this more of a democratic thing? Hey, 
51% of the men of the town have decided that Gideon needs to hang for this before word gets out, before our oppressors find out and get upset with us. They come to Gideon's father. And what does Gideon's father say? He doesn't say, well, who am I, right? I'm just some guy. He's a man. He's a grown man. Take it up with him and whatever you guys can do. Good luck catching him. No, no, no. Gideon's father stands between the community and Gideon and tells them, how about you let Baal contend against Gideon? If Baal is God, Baal should be able to deal with my son. No, you're not getting him. I am not going to hand him over. No, that is a counter institution that needs to be brought back for so many reasons. And you could say, oh, there's so much potential for abuse. If we recognize that the family and extended families have authority in the lives of individual members, there's so much abuse. Yeah, you know what? There's so much abuse that can happen in the church when there's no check. There's so much abuse that can happen in the civil government when there's no check. You need to have checks and balances where there are different spheres of authority. And in the event of one of them becoming corrupted, an appeal can be made, accountability can be brought from a different sphere of authority. When we don't have that, what we get is oppression. God knew what he was doing when he set up institutions of authority, orderliness in the home, in civil society, and in the church. He knew what he was doing. There is no option to just opt out and say, ah, this one we don't need anymore. It's not tenable. That's not a good solution when it comes to authority in the church. Some people go that direction. It's a bad idea. They say, oh, I've known some pastors who were not very good. They weren't very good pastors. They were jerks, terrible moral examples, very bad character. They were awful to people, couldn't respect them. Yeah, you know what? That's not an indictment on the office of pastor itself. Actually, if anything, that might be an indictment on whatever the local congregation and the other leadership members were doing and not doing in that case. They should have been doing their job to provide a check on this pastor who had bad character or bad teaching, bad theology, bad ways of relating to people. But you should protect the office of the pastor or the deacon by requiring accountability, not by abolishing it. Well, we've got to abolish it in order to preserve the memory of this being a good thing. Some people think that the civil space, civil authorities should be abolished. We should just not have government because government corrupts. Power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely as Lord Acton once said. Well, that's not going to work. See how that's been tried in recent years with the defund the police movement. Crime goes way up. You thought the police were bad? Just wait until it's your common thugs, organized crime, violent revolutionaries running amok. You'll wish that those cops who retired early and don't want to come back, you'll wish that they had stuck around. The solution is not to abolish civil government. The solution is to hold accountable individuals within the civil government when they do what they ought not to do, when they abuse their authority, when they themselves are acting in a lawless way. Well, so also in the nuclear family, in the extended family, there were some who said we should just abolish the authority of the husband and the father or the head over an extended family, the patriarch of an extended family. Let's abolish patriarchy. If it doesn't make sense that we would 
respond that way to abuse of authority in the civil government or in the church? How can it be defended that this is how it went? This is what was done with the authority of patriarchs over families. Quite simply, it can't be defended because it's indefensible. It's inexcusable. And actually, if you ask me, from my studies, from what I've researched thus far, I have a growing suspicion that this was a convenient idea for some very wealthy men who, just like they wanted you to forget that God created the heavens and the earth in six days and rested on the seventh, that God made man in his image after his likeness, male and female, he created them, blessing them. The same guys who wanted you to forget that because Darwin's theory was convenient for their climbing of the ladder, they also wanted you to not put stock in husbands, fathers, and heads over extended families. The same people, the industrialists, new money. Now they're not new money anymore, but they used to be. Now they are the establishment, but they used to be new money. How they got, in part, so ridiculously wealthy is they got a hold of the legislative process and they enacted what Frederick Bastiat would call legal plunder by proxies, as often as not. Political parties, journalistic institutions, academia, even, yes, nonprofits, and radical activist organizations on both ends of the political spectrum, all of the above, and yes, even churches, even denominations. How? Money. Money answers everything. And if you note, what are the laws with regards to inheritance? How highly are a lot of heads of household taxed when in centuries past, they would have passed down wealth that they accumulated. They would have built up their household. They would have passed on that wealth to their sons in particular because their sons would be heads of household, not because they didn't love their daughters, but because their daughters were going to marry some man and he would be the head of that household. And their sons were going to take up the household after them and inherit the wealth so that they could continue to provide for and oversee and look after the extended family. The welfare state was designed to drive a stake into the heart of the extended family and the church as the social safety net. And as Aaron Wren is pointing out, as Sheffield and Levin are pointing out, these institutions were, in their time, at their inception, counter-institutions. If you want to do a better thing, you're going to have to dust off some history books, dust off your Bible, and look at what were the institutions that these institutions displaced. And that, my friends, that is the right kind of conservatism. When I say that I'm a conservative, that's what I mean. Not for no reason am I reading old books. Not for no reason am I reading my Bible at the beginning of these episodes and trying to encourage you to think about these things that we read in the scriptures and think about meditations by Marcus Aurelius, for instance. Think about Polybius. Think about Eusebius. Think about Augustine and what they had to say. Not for no reason do I share these things with you now because to my way of thinking, C.S. Lewis had the right of it. We all want progress, he wrote, in the case for Christianity. But progress means getting nearer to the place where you want to be. And if you have taken a wrong turning, then to go forward does not get you any nearer. If you are on the wrong road, progress means doing an about turn and walking back to the right road. And in that case, the man who turns back soonest is the most progressive man. 
There's nothing progressive about being pig-headed and refusing to admit a mistake. And I think if you look at the present state of the world, it's pretty plain that humanity has been making some big mistake. We're on the wrong road. And if that is so, we must go back. Going back is the quickest way on. When you appreciate why Lewis said that and how true it is, it's only all the truer, the farther down the wrong road these people take us, with our consent, granted, the more it makes sense that Lewis and his pal Tolkien wrote stories for children who are the future in which men with swords and bows and arrows and courage fighting dragons featured prominently. You say, wow, these are very old stories. No, no. We're trying to go back to some ways that were better than the ways we're acting right now, the ways we're relating right now, the ways we've oriented our hearts here. We're trying to go back because some of these old ways were much better than what we have right now. Not because those men were better, not that we're going to be nostalgic and foolish enough to suppose that there's some new thing under the sun, but rather we have a rich history of men doing good things against long odds, saying true things, even when threatened with abuse and everyone under their care, under their watch, being the better for it. We need to remember those men, learn their lessons, and be encouraged by their examples so that we can leave examples for those who follow after us. That's all the time I've got for this episode. I got to run. As always, thank you for listening. Thank you to JP Chavez for sharing the Aaron Wren article with me. I think it was JP. It's the kind of article JP would have shared with me, even if he didn't. So I'm glad for that. Thank you for that, at least, JP. (laughs) As always, thank you for listening. Until next time, God bless. You've been listening to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. For more content like what you just heard, subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify. Also check out thegarrettashleymulletshow.com to subscribe to email alerts when new episodes are published. As always, you can reach me with any comments, questions, complaints, objections, or insights at garrettashleymullet at protonmail.com.